Jean, Kerry, Carl, Ron, all the people hiding in the back doing the work that we don't always realize they're doing. Um, the COVID timeline messes me up, so I keep going to say a couple of years ago, but it's, it's been longer than that. Probably, f- well, my last trip to India, right as COVID hit. Um, I remember Monica was there, we were heading up north, um, and we're doing some conferences, and as we were there, Rufus had said to me, hey, we're going to go and have dinner with his family, uh, you know their son, um, and so we go to we go to this house, it's a little tiny shack of a house, we're in there, we're eating food, uh, as is the way of their culture, we're sitting down at the table, the family are serving us, they don't eat with us, they wait and, wait and eat afterwards, so we're sitting there while this family is serving us, and I look on the wall, and here's the picture of the son, and I was like, oh, I do know their son. Uh, last year, when I was here, we were down at the orphanage, and, and he's one of the pastor evangelists, and doing some really good work, and we got talking, and, and he handed me the invite to his wedding, which was like a month away. And he's like, please, like, we want the honor of your presence at our wedding. And I was like, thank you so much. Uh, I'm not going to be able to be here because I, I can't get back that soon, but like, I really appreciate it. And I still have that wedding invite in my house. Um, the part that, that, that I hadn't computed uh, between then and on the way to this house and Rufus saying, you know, this person's son. Well, what he was saying was, this is the lady whose son died last year. Um, and so as I'm sitting there at dinner and I'm looking on the wall at this little memorial plaque to their son, earlier that year, some Hindu people had come in and killed their son for the sake of the gospel. Um, he was sharing the gospel truth and they brutally murdered him, left his body, and this woman was left without her child. Uh, again, as COVID was hitting last year and we're all asked to mask up, I remember um, being on the phone with uh, another buddy back in India, Anchor, and he was telling me this story. Um, I mentioned it in passing a while ago. Um, but he, he was telling me as we're on the phone, he's like, I'm just so sad. I'm like, what's happened? He's like, there's this boy, 14 years old, had just given his life to Jesus. And he's like, this week, so this was a couple of years ago, he's like, this week uh, we were... Uh, he went out into the field to, uh, I think he went to use the bathroom, actually. He was going out into the field to use the bathroom. Uh, and some guys came up and stoned him to death. 14 years old, had been a believer for a week. Um, I think about several years ago, an assignment that I was given at Multnomah, and we were reflecting on the sinfulness and the brokenness of the world. And, um, and so I had this prayer project I had to do, and I was sitting at my computer one day, uh, and I, I was just reflecting on the brokenness of the world, and up popped, I, I don't even remember how, up popped a video of some ISIS extremists uh, killing and burning, and some burning alive Christians. And I remember, please don't judge me in this moment, I remember as I sat and I looked at the video, I thought I would never want to look at that ever. And then I was in this prayer exercise, and God's like, you want to learn the sinfulness of the world? Click play. And I sat shaking in tears as I watched brothers and sisters around the world being burned alive. Um, There are horrible and horrific things happening to members of our family around the globe every day. People are losing their property, losing their lives, losing their children. Uh, They're being kicked out of their home and forced to flee to different countries where they don't speak the language um, because of the atrocities of people that are opposed to the gospel message and opposed to the people of God. 
We're, gonna, we're in this series looking at Zechariah. We're going to look in a minute at um, the next vision that Zechariah speaks, um, which is speaking right into these kind of atrocities that are happening around the world. So if you remember, February 15, 519 BC, Zechariah is at night on his way to sleep and receives these visions. And so last week we looked at the first of the visions that he had. This week, Zechariah is contemplating the vision he's just seen. And as he's contemplating it, he gets the second vision that appears before him that, that speaks hope to the people of Israel as they face the atrocities of the nations round about. So I'm going to read this. I, actually, I would invite you to close your eyes um, because sometimes it's easier to picture um, when you're hearing it. So I want you to close your eyes and just imagine what he sees. So this is Zechariah chapter 1, starting at verse 18. He says, Then I looked up, and there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, What are these? He answered, These are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, and I asked, what are these coming to do? And he answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head, but the craftsmen have come to terrify them and throw down these horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter its people. This is the vision of the Lord to Zechariah. And where I want to start, I mean, random horns and craftsmen, what did you picture in your mind as you think of this vision? Um, at this point in the story, remember, Israel has been kicked out of their land. They've been walking in sin. They've been rebelling against the covenant of God, true to the promises God gave them. If you reject me, you'll be sent out of the land. And, and at this point in the story, Babylon came. They took, well, Assyria came and took most of the northern tribes away. Babylon came, took Jerusalem, uh, Judah away, destroyed Jerusalem, just destroyed the temple. Um, and then Hey guys, ministry, the, the story of Ezra and Nehemiah, if you read there, the people are brought back to the land. They started rebuilding the temple according to the word of the Lord. And then all of a sudden, opposition comes from all around. There's persecution from neighbors. Uh, there's difficulties in the land. Uh, all these obstacles coming against them. They get discouraged and they stop the work of building. So here are these people. They've been kicked out of the land because of their sin. They've been brought back to the land filled with hope. And all of a sudden, they're not going the way they want to. Things uh, are getting worse. And the nations that have persecuted them are continuing the work of persecuting God's people. So I, I, I'll start with this statement that we know really well this truth, but it's the summary of what this passage is about and what it means to the people listening to it. God will bring retribution to those who oppose his people. And we don't like to talk about this in the Western world. We want the happy, clappy, like, Jesus loves everybody. Let's not think about the, the harder stuff. But God promises in Scripture that he will bring retribution. So when I think about the people who killed this, this woman's son in India, there is retribution coming. When I think about nations in the world that have opposed God's people, historic and present, retribution is coming. This passage is all about helping us to understand that there will be consequence for them, there will be judgment upon them, uh, and the hope that comes in that. 
These people are, are struggling to rebuild. They're discouraged. Persecution continues to be in their faces. Vision from God is to encourage them that though things are hard, uh, the, the answer is coming. So I want to I look through some of the, the images. Um, you may be familiar with some of the biblical symbolism of these images, but I want to talk about them um, and then explain what this means for us. So the first, the first part of the vision, there are these four horns. So um, the passage lets us know this. Other parts of the Bible let us know this. Common, ancient, Near Eastern history. The symbolism of the horn is that it symbolizes strength, power, and authority. So you can go all through Scripture from beginning to end. There are all these moments where there's the image of a horn or God granting someone a horn or the horn being taken away, all to do with the power and the authority that these people have. So when he's setting up this image of horns, the passage is going to tell us that these horns represent nations that have an authority that's been given to them to overtake God's people. So there's a horn, strength and authority of these nations. The number four, um, we didn't talk about this last week, but the number four in Scripture and in ancient Near Eastern, the ancient Near Eastern world is very symbolic. And usually when they use the number four, they're talking about the four points of the compass. So if you remember last week, he had a vision of a man on a horse and then there were three other men on horses behind. And it says, what have you been doing? We've been patrolling the whole earth. There's four of them because they've been going north, south, east, and west across the whole earth. So commonly, when we're looking at the word four, and this vision comes up of the four horns, the people who would be hearing this vision would be going, okay, horns represent uh, the power and the authority that's been given to people or to nations. And then the number four is talking about like all over the world. Um, there is a whole ton of debate and argument. And we, I mean, it's fun to do, right, when you're looking at the Bible. Who are these people? Who are the four horns? So what I want to do, I want to give you the four options for how we can interpret who these four horns are that this vision is about. So I'll just stick them all up. Number one, if, if these people were reading it and thinking, okay, it could be uh, like the number four, what's significant about the number four, what nations are we dealing with? So you're at the point where uh, the, the Medo-Persian uh, empire is taking over Israel and they're experiencing persecution there. So it could be that these people are looking back going, we were persecuted in Egypt we were brought from Egypt into the land of Israel. The nation of Assyria came and conquered us and took us out of Israel. The nation of Babylon came and conquered us and took us out of Israel. And now the Medo-Persians are here and they're persecuting us. Um, and, and so they're looking going, okay, these are four nations. And we've seen in history, uh, Egypt got dealt with. How did they get dealt with? Uh, the Assyrian army came in. The Assyrian nation got dealt with. How did they get dealt with? The Babylonian Empire came in. The Babylonian Empire got dealt with. How did they get dealt with? The Medo-Persian Empire came in. So you're struggling under this foreign empire that is persecuting. Well, you know the pattern. There's another empire that will come and destroy them. And, um, and so some people look at this and think it's, it's the four um, from the past up to their present are the four horns that are going to have happened to them, what the passage describes. Option number two is that it's more predictive. So they're looking at, we've just come out of Babylon. We're dealing with the, this Medo-Persian government. And they'll look at the prophecies that Daniel gave, which these people would be familiar with. And if you remember Daniel chapter 2, um, 
Nebuchadnezzar is having this dream. Daniel's brought in to interpret the dream, and he has this vision of this statue. Where I can't remember all the parts. I remember the head's, the head's gold, and then the, is it bronze, and then iron, and then clay feet, um, or two-toned feet. And, and he's saying, the head is Nebuchadnezzar, and, and it's the nation of Babylon. And then there's this chess piece coming that's going to be the next nation that's Medo-Persia and then, the, and then there's a kingdom coming after that uh, which we know from history is the Greek and, uh, empire coming in and then after that the Roman empire coming in so, there, so some people are looking at this going okay is it four historic nations is it their current to some future nations um, some people look at it and, and option three and four really go together option three is we understand that the number four is symbolic and so it represents the four points of the compass. So the nations we're talking about are Assyria and Babylon in the north. We're talking about Egypt and Edom down in the south. We're talking, what were you for west? Uh, over in the west, you've got the Philistines. Over in the east, you've got Ammon and Moab. And so it's, it, is he talking about all of the nations that have been coming against Israel? Because all of them have had their comeuppance. All of them have been dealt with with retribution. Um, or is it the last one? they would have understood it to mean any nation and any point in history that has come against Israel. And for us today, any nation at any point in history that comes against the people of God will have the consequence that we see here. Why, why am I saying all this? I like to let you know that if you, like, you're confused when you read the passage, so is the scholarly world right? So all of the PhDs and people that have done this for their entire life, they're confused too, and they're doing their best educated guessing to figure out what this means. When I see a vision like this in Scripture that has multiple options, if I look at this, I, I can see option one being very true and would be encouraging in their situation. I can see option two being very true and a little bit scary, because you're only dealing with the Medo-Persians. There's another couple of kingdoms that are about to come and mess around with you as well. Um, and option three and four, I think in many senses, when the visions leave them ambiguous, it's on purpose. I think it meant everyone that had come up till that point. I think it meant and predicted the nations that were coming. And I think it was intended for us to understand that every nation and every person that stands against the people of God, uh, not because we're horrible people, but stand against us because we represent the gospel, uh, there will be consequence for them in, in this age and in what is to come. So here you've got this group of people who are, who are back in the land, they're failing to build, they've been discouraged, they've been opposed, and, and this vision is given to them that these nations that are opposing you will get what they deserve they will get the consequence of their action. And this is what it's going to look like. We're going to bring in these people, the next part of the vision, income, the, this, these craftsmen, four craftsmen. Um, and, and we're going to play around here a little bit. So just to understand this word, um, it, again, it's a very broad word, has lots of range of definitions. So in this image, these horns come. We don't know if they were attached to animals or if they were just horns sitting on their own. In come these craftsmen, and, and this word they use can mean a stoneworker, an engraver, a carpenter, a metalworker, a blacksmith, an armorer. So anyone that engages in skilled craftsmanship, these people are going to come in, and it says they're going to terrify the nations, and, and they're going to destroy them. 
They're going to tear them down. And so there are places in Scripture, like in Ezekiel, where this word is used, and it's used to describe people who come in to destroy. Uh, and so, so something's going to happen. These nations are going to be torn down. The passage says they're going to be scattered. Um, they're going to tear down the horn of the nation who lifted up their horn against Judah, and they're going to scatter its people. And we've seen it in history. What happened to the Egyptian empire? It was scattered. What happened to the Assyrian Empire? It was scattered. Uh, what happened to the Medo-Persian Empire? It was scattered. The Roman Empire? It was scattered. What's going to happen in the countries and nations around the world where their kingdoms are set up, opposing and oppressing the kingdom of God? History and the truth of Scripture tells us there is a day coming where they will be scattered and they will have happened to them uh, what they've asked for by opposing the people of God. So as they're, they're reading this, the, the, the second statement that I want to throw here is God is sovereign. We know this, um, and we ask lots of questions. Why do things happen the way they, they, they do? One of the things we see in Scripture all the time is God's sovereignty over the nations. This is one of the perfect examples where he has taken nations that don't know him, don't love him, are in opposition to him, and he is allowing them to orchestrate his will. And he brings in a nation to persecute Israel, and he brings in a nation that challenges them, and another nation comes in and, and smacks them down. God is sovereign over nations. So we're looking at the political situation in the world, and there's all sorts of wars going on around the globe right now. There's all sorts of persecution happening. There are all sorts of atrocities happening around the globe, and we go, it's awful. I, I look at the news, and most of the time I can't stand what I see. I'm like, it's so heavy. And we go, is there any hope? The hope is God is sovereign over nations. And we don't just have to sit around and say, Jesus is going to come back one day and put it right. That is the ultimate hope that we're waiting for. But for these people, in their historic time, these nations were dealt with. So we will see in our lifetime these nations torn down and scattered for what they've done. And we will look ahead to the ultimate day when Jesus is coming, hopefully really soon, uh, to establish his messianic kingdom that is the ultimate one that's going to rule and reign. So he is sovereign. And again, why does it matter? In one sense, it matters as we look at the global scale and we see God is operating all around the world, orchestrating events and utilizing the hard-heartedness of nations to allow his work to happen. And we go, okay, but that doesn't really affect us because we're sitting here comfortably in, in America. But if he can take a nation and change empires and use empires against empires to orchestrate his will, he can give you the $5 that you need this week. He can get you the new car that you need. He can open up the job opportunity that you're looking for. He can defeat the sin issue that you're battling with. He can restore the relationship that you're sitting in wondering how it could ever happen. He can look at your organization and fix all of the problems that you're seeing, and he can do it in a moment. This is the God who navigates, and I don't want to use the word manipulates in the negative sense, but he can use and move these things. I want to play a little game now, and I, I just want to ask a what-if question. That's the historic part of this passage, but as I've been sitting in it, I've had this thing I've been ruminating on that I want to just 
submit, I'm just going to set it on the table for your consideration. As one of the things that I think may be missed when people start interpreting this passage and trying to figure out the who's who. What if when the word craftsman was used, the intention wasn't to refer to the narrow definition of the word that means to tear down and actually was referencing all of the breadth of how it's used in Scripture the majority of the time as skilled craftsmen? What if it's actually craftsmen? What if you have a situation where, I mean, we've seen it in the world, poachers have been doing this for a long time, killing elephants for their tusks, and what do they do with them? They carve them, and they craft them. And so what would happen if, the, if part of this image was these nations represented by horns are coming and opposing Israel? And God's bringing in these craftsmen who are going to chop off the horn that represents their authority. And then they're going to use the skill and the creativity God's given them to recraft that horn to adorn his temple. Why do I say that? What's the context we're in? The people are trying to rebuild the temple. They're trying to rebuild and they've been discouraged because of these uh, nations opposing them. Let, let Let me put some scriptures up here. Where does the word craftsman come uh, prior to this? Lots of places. But here's an important one. Exodus 35. The Lord said to Moses, See, I've chosen Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. I've filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom and understanding, with knowledge and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, to engage in all kinds of crafts. Moreover, I have appointed a holy Ab, the son of Ahissamach of the tribe of Dan, to help him. Also, I've given him the ability to all the skilled workers to make everything that I've commanded you. The tent of meeting, the ark of the covenant law and the, with the atonement cover on it, all the other furnishings of the tents, the table and its articles, the pure gold lampstand and all its accessories, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering, all its utensils, the basin with its stand, the woven garments, both the sacred garments for Aaron the priest and the garments for his son when they serve as priests, and the anointing oil and fragrant incense for the holy place, they're to make them just as I commanded you. So what's going on in this passage? God, by his Spirit, gifted some men to do his work. So he gifted them with craftsmanship. And it, it, it can be the word stonemasonry, it can be the word carpentry, it can be the word engraving, but he's gifted these people with a creative ability to orchestrate his will for the purpose of building the temple. One of the things that, that if you've been reading all of Zechariah and prep for the series, you'll, you'll have noticed this. This is the first vision that is this direction. We're talking about these horns. The next, like in the next visions, we're going to see the priest being readorned in his robes. We're going to see the golden lampstand that's present in the temple. What if this craftsman gift was given for the purpose of changing nations? Let me jump backwards in Exodus to connect this to the passage. God says to Moses, build an altar of acacia wood, three cubits high. It's to be square, five cubits long, five cubits wide. Make a horn at each of the four corners so that the horn and the altar of one piece and overlay that altar with bronze. I read the four horns and I just couldn't get away from the four horns that adorn the altar. I was like, why? 
Why are there horns on the altar? I have no idea. I've been researching and reading, trying to figure out what's the, the, the importance of there being horns on each corner other than they're a symbol of the authority that is released when a sacrifice is made. And what happens, they would, they would sacrifice the animal and they would sprinkle the blood on each of the four horns. And I was like, man, with this image, it doesn't say in the passage, these are the horns that scattered Judah, so we're going to terrify them and then we're going to utterly destroy them. It says we're going to terrify them and then we're going to scatter its people. So the people still exist. We know from places like Isaiah, the nation of Egypt opposed Israel. And then we see in Isaiah, I'm saying, there's going to be a day where Egypt is going to bow before Jesus. And I was like, what if these enemy nations that are opposing God's people, God can remove the horn that's a symbol of their authority. He can give it to creative people who can carve and work with this horn and craft it to adorn the altar that Jesus was sacrificed on for the sin of the world. What if this is also a statement of the redemption of these nations around the world that have been opposing God's people? What if this is? There are people right now who, who th- there were people who killed my friend's son in India. What if his death allowed them to have life? What if his process of, of, of sharing the gospel and laying, his life being laid down caused a conviction in their hearts that led them to Jesus. I think there's more in this passage than just judgment. Let's wipe out all of the people that are evil and oppose what we want to do. I think God's plan is bigger than that. I think God can take craftsmen and creativity and use it to rework the brokenness of the world to adorn the temple that the people are building. Why does it matter, though? Creativity is important. We've talked about it here as one of the values and practices that we want to lean into in the church. We see all the way through Scripture, God, the creative God, the earth is formless and void. There's just a big bunch of chaotic nothingness. And what does God do through His Spirit? The Spirit is hovering over the face of the deep, and then God speaks, and the Spirit carries His breath, and Jesus is that breath, and through that process begins to form order out of chaos and beauty out of the mess. It's what God does. We see it as you see this nomadic people group with no way to connect with God. He births creativity into people to establish a house where God can be. And then we see these nations opposing them, and he's saying, don't just sit back and give up. Employ the creativity that God's given you to rebuild the temple that I have made. And um, you think about this in history, recent history here. What are the Negro spirituals? They are songs that slaves wrote and produced and sang in the fields while they were pre- oppressed and persecuted, that birthed the whole gospel movement that we know in the church today. Out of their oppression, they took the horn of the oppressor and they crafted spirituals that have transformed the nation for the better. We see it in all sorts of places, poets and writers around the world who take the horn of the oppressor and they turn it around. Victor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning, the people that wrote during the Holocaust and wrote hymns and songs and, and, and shared the gospel and ministered powerfully as atrocities were done to them. People take uh, the evil done in the world and, and rework it to be something that adorns the temple of God. God has not finished his work. 
In this story, there are these opposing forces coming against the people of God, and he raises up four craftsmen, which, if we're looking at nations, it's the four other nations that are coming in to destroy. However, if we're looking at this in the creative craftsmanship that could very well be the beauty of this imagery as we look at the context of of Exodus, that means today, in all of the brokenness of the world, God wants to raise up some craftsmen and craftswomen. It's one of those terms. Craftspeople who can take the brokenness that we see around it and transform it into something that brings hope who can pursue the pain with resilience in order to allow God to use us to to rework the brokenness in the world in a way that's going to highlight his temple and draw people into his presence. Let me read this passage to you again with a new understanding, and let's think about what Zechariah may have understood, what the people may have learned as this vision was revealed to them. So Zechariah says, I looked up And there before me were four horns. I asked the angel who was speaking to me, what are these? He answered, these are the horns that scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I asked, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their head. They were discouraged. They were downtrodden. But the craftsmen have come to terrify those people, throw down the horns, Uh, who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah and scatter its people. So there is a promise, God's sovereignty, God's retribution against those who oppose his way. But this beautiful invitation, are you going to be a craftsman who stands up and becomes a transforming agent as the world is throwing a whole bunch of not good stuff at us? (laughs) You knew the word that was coming at us. I'm like, my mom might be watching. Uh, (laughs) As all this stuff is thrown at us, are we going to be people that are weighed down by it and discouraged and give up the building work that God has called us to do? Are we going to be people that fixate on it and gripe about it and just gather together as negative Nancys and complain about the world around about us? Are we going to step into the invitation to be the craftsmen that are going to take the brokenness of the world and through what God does in us, transform and redeem and beautify it in a way that's going to lead people back to the heart of Jesus. You have a choice. Who do you want to be? God, thank you for your grace toward us. Thank you for the truth that you're sovereign, that there's not a thing in this world that happens that you don't understand. Thank you that you have throughout history been orchestrating events for the protection of your people, even when it doesn't feel like it. Thank you that when things are bad and hard, when lives are lost, that it's not the end, and you bear fruit through those things, and you use them for the advancement of your kingdom. And God, just as these people were struggling to rebuild and losing hope, we've been there. We've all been there in those seasons where we're overwhelmed and struggling uh, to, to have hope in the midst of the difficulty. God, lift up our eyes to see the sovereign God who's over all. Lift up our eyes to see the historic provision, the historic protection, and the historic transformation that you have worked for your people. And God, would you help us to make that choice, not to sit back and be overwhelmed with our heads downcast, but to be people whose eyes are lifted up to you 
and who make the choice to become the skilled craftsmen that you want to use to transform the world around us in a way that points to your glory and brings people into your kingdom. God, as we look at our church and we look at our lives, may, may your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven, and not for our sake, but for Jesus' sake and all for his glory.